6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 11 through 13. So Balaam is getting upset. And the angel of the Lord went further, verse 26, and stood in a narrow place where there's no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the ass saw that the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? Balaam said unto the ass, I have no idea what, what Balaam's reaction was to having this donkey speak to him. Because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass upon whom thine has ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever accustomed to do so unto thee? And, and he said, Nay. <laughs> Verse 31, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee because thy way is perverse before me. The ass saw me and turned these three times, unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee and saved her alive. He doesn't mess around. Who is he? This angel allows himself to be worshipped. Is there any angel that allows himself to be worshipped? Only one, and he's in a lot of trouble over it. The angel of the Lord is a phrase that most of us ascribe, and I think with some justification, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting cross-reference here would be Joshua chapter 5, before the battle of Jericho, where Joshua is on sentry, presumably on sentry duty, and he sees that he's challenged. He sees the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, and challenges him like a son, are you for us or our enemies? He says, take off your shoes here on hallowed ground. And Joshua realizes who it is, takes off his shoes. Why that phrase? Because it was the same phrase he used out of the burning bush. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. Jesus Christ did. And the last part of Joshua 5 goes into that. But uh, from Daniel and John and other passages, we know that angels never allowed themselves to be worshipped. They obviously except Satan, which got in a lot of trouble. And obviously when the phrase is used of the angel of the Lord, meaning as an Old Testament presentation of a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Not free of dispute, but a widely held view among biblically fundamental scholars. Anyway, Balaam is allowed to go on and... Um, he blesses then Israel rather than curses them, which displeases his hirers. But basically, he is a hireling. He was warned not to go. He was not satisfied with this answer, made further requests, given permission, but not to allow anything but blessings. Moses summarizes this for us in Deuteronomy 23. You might, rather than wander through this whole story, let's kick ahead to Deuteronomy. You can do that at your leisure. Deuteronomy 23. Chapter 23 is an interesting chapter. Let's just pick up a few verses of it, show you there's tidbits everywhere. Deuteronomy 23, he who is wounded in the stones or hath privy membered cut off shall not enter the house of the congregation. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to the tenth generation shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. That verse you might mark and link it to Ruth 4, when the blessing is pronounced in the house of Pharaoh's. 
he's a bastard son of Tamar. What kind of blessing is that? Well, because the bastard son cannot dare until the 10th generation, 10th generation from Pharaohs was David. That's a prophecy of David. You won't get that out of Ruth 4 unless you understand verse 2 of Deuteronomy 23. But moving on to verse 3. Talks about Ammonite and the Moabite shall not enter the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever, because they met not with bread and water with this day when ye came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, or of Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. And then Moses goes on. But that's a little summary of Balaam's error, okay? That's not where it ends. It gets worse, gang. Balaam, you figure, gee, he's kind of a off balance, but uh, what harm can come of that? Well, he's not through yet. He obviously got deprived of the rewards that King Balak of Moab was going to uh, offer him. So his covetous heart conceives a plan. He couldn't execute the mission that Balak had laid out for him. So he comes up with another idea. You recall they were camped by the borders of Moab. Balaam's done his homework. He knows the laws of Judaism. He knows what Israel's rules are. He assumes that if he can get Israel to sin, God can't bless Israel. He'll have to curse them. It's a very interesting thing because with that spiritual insight, he weaves a plan to get carnal reward. Because he goes to Israel's enemies, King Balak, and suggests that what they do is get their good-looking gals along the border to entice the Israeli guys into cross-marrying, which was forbidden for Israel. They were supposed to stay separate. And so by getting the gals to get them to compromise that commitment, God would have to curse Israel. And if God punishes Israel, Balak's purpose would be served and Balaam would be rich. And if you go into Numbers 25, you find that it worked. Israel bowed in Shittim, and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. Verse 2, they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined herself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He's kindled against Israel because they're being disobedient. They're compromising their commitment of separation that he called them to. How did that get all engineered by Israel's enemies? How did they get that insight? From Balaam's counsel. So that's the error. And it works. And you find it happening here. And you, just, you pop over to, say, Numbers 31. 31, 15, Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. Moses didn't mess around. So they deal with it. And I won't take the time to it. We'll use all our evening if I go into all this, but you get the gist of it. And you can track that down. Now, you will find that in the scripture there are three phrases that surface. And some people make a distinction between the three. I'm not sure it's valid or that critical, but I should share it with you. The error of Balaam, that's the phrase Jude uses. And that's generally regarded as the natural reasoning that God could not fail to curse a disobedient people. Seeing the immorality in Israel. The error of Balaam was that God couldn't by grace respond to that. That's one view. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15 makes reference to this and calls it the way of Balaam. And that tends to focus there on the very fact that a prophet is holding out his gift for hire. 
That's called the way of Balaam. His style was to sell his services. But the error is perhaps more closely linked with another phrase that we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, deals with the letter to the church of Pergamos. Now, if you remember the cycle of the seven letters, you have the church of Ephesus, the first love that was lost, right? Smyrna, the suffering church, right? And then the third one is Pergamos. That's the marriage of the world. Do you know what bigamy means? Double marriage. Pergamos means mixed marriage. Okay, so this is the names themselves, if you remember that study, are significant. Smyrna means myrrh, crushed, so forth, the suffering church. Pergamos is the church married to the world. And, and here the Lord Jesus Christ, in writing a letter to the church at Pergamos, says many things, but he gets to the verse 14. He says, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam. What's the doctrine of Balaam? Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. The Lord Jesus Christ is using in his letter to the seven churches an allusion that we just read from the book of Numbers about Balaam and this whole screwy business with Balak and Moab. These aren't little quaint stories that are ancient traditions. They really happened. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself uses that event to make a spiritual point to a future church, a whole era in which the church becomes married to the world, and whose the churches, whose leadership caused them to stumble by eating things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication, spiritual fornication. And uh, from that, you can go on to your Revelation study. Now, what happened to Balaam? Balaam took the way of Cain, lived riotously afterward. He got his reward from Balak, so he scored but perished miserably with the enemies of God at the last. And you can read that record in Joshua chapter 13, where he gets his. The error of Balaam for hire, Jude talks about, sacrificing the eternal riches for temporal gain, lust for the pleasures of sin for a season, the greed for the treasures of Egypt. Phrases out of Hebrew 11.25 and Mark 8.36. Just before Jude in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas left Paul having loved this present world. The passion for worldly enticements to interfere with your eternal riches. You know, many times people say, well, what's wrong with doing X? That's not the question. What's right about it? I don't care whether you're talking about anything, a hobby, an interest. The issue is, does it get in the way of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Things don't have to be great momentous sins to separate you from God. A light touch on the things of this world. That's our challenge. Well, to keep moving, we have now the next illusion that uh, we have Cain, we've had Balaam. The third one is Korah. Now, the first thing that strikes me about Korah that's a little strange is out of order, because Korah, we'll discover, is really in uh, number 16, not 22. So for some reason, Jews take them in a different order. You would think if you're going chronologically, you'd say, gee, there's Cain, there's Korah, and there's Balaam. But Jude, or through the Holy Spirit, turns it around so there's Cain, Balaam, and then Korah. Because by doing that, it validates, illustrates, if you will, a process that occurs. Cain, the way of Cain, the error of Balaam. What's the next thing? The rebellion of Korah. Now, in your Bible, it may say the gainsaying of Korah. Some of your older translations may have that. Speaking against, the word in the Greek is antologia, which actually means against the word which is kind of interesting. There's a, uh, maybe a very intentional pun there. 
who was Korah? He was a Levite, cousin to Moses. You can find his background in Exodus chapter 6. Now, the real issue here was under his leadership, he and his associates, Dathan and Abiram, rejected God's appointed mediator. Moses had been appointed by God, and Dathan, Abiram, and Korah were the trio that led a rebellion against Moses' leadership. Now, what's so wrong with that? Well, first of all, they're rebelling against the type of Christ. And that's part of the mission for us. Now, they may not realize that, but we need to realize that. Now, they made some mistakes. They dared to think that all are holy. Let's take a look at number 16. It's time to get into the text there. Number 16. Verse 1, Korah, the son of Ishar, and the son of Kohath, and the son of Levi, and Dathan, and that's Edward T. Robinson, for those of you that remember the movie, and Abiram, and sons of Eliab, and On, and the son of Peleth, and the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly. Hey, we're talking a big crowd here. How many people came out of Egypt? Probably a million. That's a lot of people. I don't know how many of you have ever been involved with a large group in the military. You know, you may sound of those military rules a little strange, but if you've got several hundred people to get orderly, they work, you know, because they got rules and things. And if you've ever taken a tour group of a couple hundred people, you know, it gets complicated to move them to an airport, let alone across the Sinai, you know. And we're not talking a few hundred, we're talking a million people. And excuse me if this is an ethnic slur, but they were Jewish. <laughs> Have you ever been to Israel? And I'm not being racist here. I think David Ben-Gurion made that crack. You know, in terms of trying to find a people to rule, you couldn't do worse. And, and Moses, if you study, study Moses and his conversation with God, he says, hey, this was your idea. I didn't ask for these people. A million people. So they had princes. And there's 250 princes that rebelled. They rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel. 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. These are the heroes. They had standing. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? Sounds good, doesn't it? Be a little presumptuous there, Moses. Are all sons of God? Jesus Christ didn't think so in John 8. The year of your father the devil, he says to the Pharisees. That was Jesus Christ's comment on the brotherhood of man. We love that idea that we're all part of one family. No, that tragically is not true. Most of this room, I hope, are members of the forever family of God, and they are a small minority and a separate part from the world. Not all are holy. Is a mediator, one Moses, in this case, is he needed? I think so. He was a type. What happened in John 14, 6? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Heavy words, often quoted, very pleasant. Stop and think what they say. One way. Is the cross really necessary? Boy, there's lots of answers to that, but I'm repeatedly drawn into Matthew chapter 26. I'm gonna, I've been skipping some of the background stuff here, but I think this is one I really want to get into because it affects you and I every day. We all ponder this strange, rigorous, narrow concept of the cross. Is the cross really necessary? I'd like you to travel with me from Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, for a few verses. We're talking Gethsemane here, the olive grove at the base of the Mount of Olives, just across from the what we call the Golden Gate, the entrance to the temple. 
They've left. They've crossed the valley. They're at this place, which apparently was one of their favorite places in the evening to pray. Then come with Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane, which means the oil press. That's an interesting pun too, isn't it? And saith unto his disciples, sit here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of his. In other words, Peter, James, and John are the insiders. They get to go in a little closer. And began to get very sorrowful and um, very depressed. And by the way, how many were left alone? Peter, James, and John, how many were left behind? Eight, good for you. How many people were in the ark? May I not have anything to do with anything, but I'll leave you with that to wonder. <laughs> Verse 38. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Those are heavy words. Don't let their familiarity mislead you. Look at them. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry here and watch with me. And he went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, get this prayer. Listen carefully what he's saying. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Did he know what was coming? You bet. He's known it for a long time. He's finally announced it to them. I'm going to Jerusalem and will suffer death. Does he know what's going to come that evening? Does he know what's coming the next morning? Does he know what the next day is going to bring? Yes. Does he welcome it? No. And I'm not trying to take anything away from his commitment to us. Don't misread me. But he prays, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Satan offered him that, the temptations. He turned it down. Satan said, Hey, take a shortcut. Worship me and we'll pass all this stuff. I'll give you all the people and all the nations and the kingdoms and all the stuff. Interesting. He never challenged Satan's ownership of it. We went the hard way. But he gets to the final hour. He says, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what a wonderful word. Underline that in your Bible. I'm sure glad that's there. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Translated in English, there's no other way. Moving on, he comes to the disciples and find them asleep. And we always focus on the sleep issue. They didn't stay awake. He wakes them and he goes and prays again. In the story here, we often don't notice what he prays three times. He says, the disciples watch and pray, he entered not in temptation, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he went again and prayed the second time and said, let's quote it again, verse 42, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Same essential concept. Then he came and found them asleep again, left them and went away again, prayed a third time, saying the same words. If there's any other way for anybody ever to get into heaven other than the way of cross, Jesus Christ died in vain and his prayer was not answered. That's heavy. It's not very attractive. We like to somehow feel that the way is bigger than that, but that's not what he said. Narrow is the way and straight is the gate that leads to salvation. Broad is the gate that leads where? You're going through a gate with lots of other people and everybody's welcome. You got the wrong gate. <laughs> so Korah and these guys have rebelled against Moses. They didn't feel that, you know, that Moses had some special ordination. They're going to get a lesson in the ordination of Moses, if you will, in Numbers chapter 16, starting about verse 31. That's me up at verse 28. It's kind of funny. Moses said, uh, verse 28, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. Do I have your attention, guys, Moses says? For I have not done them out of my own mind. If these men die a common death all, of all men, and if they be visited upon the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open up her mouth and swallow them up with all that pertains to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. 
Not to worry. That it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split open that was under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained to Korah and, all, and their goods. How many were there? Three? No. 250 plus buddies. They and all that pertained to them went down, and this is an interesting word to me, they went down alive into Sheol. I mean, I mean, I thought they were alive when they started, but I think it's an interesting phrase. And the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. Now, that's what I call a climactic finish. Jude places Korah third, because by doing that, Cain, Balaam, and Korah describe a process. They choose a way, they rush headlong into that way, and perish at the end. One of the interesting things that I'm fascinated by the book of Jude is its craftsmanship. The Holy Spirit skillfully picks every word and has structured this precisely. We shouldn't leave this without talking about the grand apostasy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All of this that Jude's talking about is prophetic. And I'll take just a quick look at it now. It's familiar to you, I'm sure, but we'll, it's an appropriate place to take a quick look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it's hard to pick this off because it's full of the great apostasy led by the what we sometimes call the Antichrist, the man of sin. Verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means that that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first, that the man of sin may be revealed, the, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, the temple of God is a specific thing, and, and, and so on. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and he goes on here. Let's pick it up about verse um, 8. Then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. But that's a flash future, if you will. Not a flash back, but a flash forward. He's assuming you understand that's ultimately going to happen to him. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. That's a heavy sentence. This guy's not a phony. This guy's not a charlatan. He's not pretending to have power. He's not pretending to do phony miracles with all power and signs and lying wonders. Those are the same Greek words used of the miracles in the Gospels. They're going to have supernatural gifts. And with all deceivableness of, of unrighteousness in them, that per, in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should receive the lie. Proper, put a definite article there. It's not a lie, the lie, the ultimate lie that they might be judged who believed not the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. The same process shows here, and they were contrasted with us who have chosen from the beginning. So the only way you get through all of this is to be supernaturally elected by, the, by God and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So there's an ultimate super apostasy yet coming that I think is very close that we're on the threshold of, and that's why spending some time in what the Scripture says about a, a, a apostasy is worthwhile. We've taken... Uh, a large time on verse 11. Now we're going to quickly pick up verses 11 and 12, uh, 12 and 13, just to keep the momentum going here. We sort of do that, take one verse for an hour and a half and then two verses for 10, 10 seconds, but that's okay. <laughs> verses 12 and 13 are not that hard. That's why we're going to just flow with this, but they have five word pictures occur here. Let's read verses 12 and 13. There are spots in your love, uh, these, they're speaking again of apostasy, the whole subject of apostasy. These are spots in your love feast. The word spots, unfortunate here. 
The word is actually rocks, in the sense of hidden rocks to a mariner. If you're sailing, the Greek word there is that is is the rock that does that you don't see but ends up being your shipwreck. These are spots in your love feasts, the agape feasts. They met to fellowship and have feasts. These guys came to eat and plunder. In effect, they didn't come to the church social to fellowship and share Christ. They came because the potluck was great. Okay, that's the, the flavor of it. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. That's the first thing, these hidden rocks. I'll come back to them. Second one. Clouds are they without water, carried about by the winds. Clouds are for what? For rain. These are clouds that are carried about by the wind that, that offer deceit. They don't have water. That's the second one. Third one. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. I'll come back to these. Fourth one, uh, raging waves of the sea foaming out their shame. And the fifth one, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Two verses with five very articulate graphic images concatenated in there. These are the hidden rocks in your love feasts when they feast without fear. There are clouds without water carried about by the winds. There are trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, uh, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming, with, uh, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Great. Let's look at that briefly. Five things. Hidden rocks, waterless clouds. Now, the word for trees, by the way, the Greek is, is a combination of the word for autumn and the word to wane. These are late autumn trees. Now, you and I aren't normally agriculture. What does that mean? That's where they're, up, they're without fruit. Well, in fact, let's go through these first. The hidden rocks. The, the Greek term here implies reefs below the ocean threatening safe navigation. Rocks that are known are not as big a problem. These rocks are hidden. So they perform a threat. People among us in the fellowship who really aren't of the body of Christ. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.